We've read our text words from Leviticus 5 and 6 and 7 concerning the trespass or restitution offering. And now as we approach the preaching of God's word, let's look to the Lord again in prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for the cleansing virtue of the precious blood of Christ, whereby we have been cleansed and washed from all iniquity. We thank you for the renewing of your spirit and how that you have granted and blessed us as Christians with a pure conscience by faith. And we pray now that you would bring these realities home to our hearts as your people. And we pray for those yet in their sins. Oh, God, be merciful, awaken their consciences Convict them of sin and draw them unto Christ this day, we pray. We ask for the grace and help of your spirit under the praise of Christ now in this endeavor. In Jesus' name, amen. In this offering that we've read about in Leviticus, the trespass or restitution offering, it teaches us the only way that we can find relief from a guilty conscience. When we think about conscience and what it is and what a guilty conscience is a guilty conscience is simply this it's the realization of unresolved sin debt there's something out of sorts between you or you and God or between you and neighbor your conscience is a gift from God that's implanted in you it's implanted in every human being and conscience informs you and a guilty conscience informs you of injustice that you've done, injustice toward God or toward neighbor. We read about this in Romans 2.15 where the Apostle Paul tells us of even those who have never read the Bible, pagans themselves, he says that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves and their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Your conscience either accuses you that you've done wrong or it excuses you that you've done right. It's kind of like the smoke alarm in your house. That green light is flashing. It's not making any sound. It's letting you know everything's okay. Everything's okay. It's peaceful. But you burn the toast and it starts that that red, that light turns red and it starts screaming at you and yelling and making that shrill, annoying sound that pierces your ears. You don't go and hit the reset button. The smoke is cleared. It's just doing its job. It's telling you there's smoke. It doesn't matter if it's a toaster fire or burning toast in the the toaster or if it's the entire house burning down, whether it's small or large, it's going to notify you that's its job. And the worst thing you could do is to become annoyed with it and rip the batteries out of it and rip it out of the seal. And I don't want to hear that anymore. And then you're sleeping in the middle of the night and your house catches fire. There's no alarm and you die in your house. It's, there's no help in suppressing conscience. It is there and God has given it as a good and helpful gift. And we read about this in Leviticus 5.17 in this trespass, a restitution offering where he says, If anyone sins doing any of the things that the Lord's commandments, that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then he realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. Here the man comes to realize his guilt in the context This includes unintentional sins, but then he realizes it. He realizes his guilt, his conscience 
is out of sorts. And I remind you today that if you have a guilty conscience, if there's something between you and God or between you and a neighbor, the passing of time cannot heal a guilty conscience. You think, well, I'll just ignore it and go on and it'll eventually go away and fade away. No, we read in the end of Genesis about Joseph's brothers who 20 years earlier had committed injustice against him and sold him into slavery and lied about him being dead to their father. Remember, 20 years later when they come before Joseph, they have a guilty conscience and they confess that they're guilty among themselves and they believe God is bringing judgment on them for what they did 20 years ago. If the sin was 20 minutes ago or 20 years ago or 40 years ago, the passing of time will not heal a guilty conscience. Self-righteous religious works cannot heal your guilty conscience. The apostle tells us in Galatians 2.16 that by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. You could do like Martin Luther and say hundreds and thousands of prayers. You could climb on your knees up the stairs, up the mountainside praying. And all of these religious works can never silence a guilty conscience. And Paul tells us this in Colossians 2.23. He says of self-imposed religion and false humility and the neglect of the body. That they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Oh, how it breaks my heart. Young people in our day cutting themselves and doing different forms of self-mutilation and self-inflicted pain and harm. Religions around the world do this kind of thing to try to fix a guilty conscience, but it will never happen. Oh, what a burden it is to bear when you have a guilty conscience. It's unbearable. You might remember the short story by Edgar Allan Poe, The Telltale Heart. It captures something of what it's like to have a guilty conscience. There's a man who it seems is a caretaker for an elderly man. And one night around midnight, he, he murders that elderly man in the house and he hides his body under the floorboards of the house. And then there's a knock at the door. The neighbors heard a scream and the police have been sent out at 4 a.m. In the pitch darkness, the police come in asking the man what's going on. He leads them through the house confidently. He's covered everything up. There's no evidence. He leads them through and shows them the different rooms of the house. He leads them right into the bedroom where he killed the man and buried his body under the floor. And he puts chairs there and sets a chair down right on top of the, where the man's body is underneath him. And he sits down confidently. He's speaking with the police. He's, he's gotten rid of it. Like you might think you've covered up your sin. You've left it behind and gotten rid of it somehow. He sits down. The police are questioning him. And they seem content. Okay, there's no evidence of any foul play. And then all of a sudden, the man sitting in the chair, he starts to hear something. Thump, thump, thump. It's the heart of that dead man under the floor. He thinks he hears his heart beating louder and louder and faster and faster until finally he shrieks out and he confesses that he killed the man and put him under the floor. Uh, dig him up, get him out of here so I don't have to hear that beating heart. It wasn't the dead man's heart he was hearing. It was his own heart. It was his own guilty conscience tormenting him. Oh, what a burden to live under, dear friend. It reminds me of years ago in eastern North Carolina when I was bear hunting my dad and my grandpa and some other men. And those bear dogs were trailing a bear through the woods. And 
They'd run back and forth and back and forth on that bear's trail, dogging him at the heels, uh, waiting for a hunter to get a chance to take a shot at him. And you might feel like that today. You're hounded by a guilty conscience. It's a terrible way to live. But my hope is today, by the preaching of the gospel, to show you that God in Christ is well able to deliver you from a guilty conscience, to free you from it. You don't have to live that way. And how you need to be freed from a guilty conscience. This is exactly what this trespass or restitution offering is teaching. It's reminding us, it's pointing us forward here of what Christ is coming to do. One of the benefits of salvation in Christ is that we're purified from the evil conscience. And today, if a guilty conscience, if the guilt of your sins, if that guilt is on your trail and you can't escape, my hope as a gospel preacher is to help you escape and be freed from it. And here in this passage, we read, and I'll expound three things. Three things that are the only way that you can be freed from a guilty conscience. And this is our theme today. Be freed from all guilt. Be freed from all guilt. The first thing you must do to be freed from guilt is to make restitution with God. First, make restitution with God. We read this in Leviticus 5. 14 to 19, and this is only by faith in Christ. There are two aspects to making restitution with God. It is by faith in Christ, first of all. We read of these sacrifices, once again, blood sacrifices, where the animal is killed instead of you, the guilty sinner. The animal dies in your place. The blameless sacrifice dies in your place. It's burned up. Pointing us to Christ, suffering the wrath of God for sinners at the cross. Christ is our restitution offering. He is our trespass offering. And when you trust in Christ, just like when they're bringing this animal and they're looking ahead to Christ, you're coming confessing your sin to God. You have got to confess your sin to God as you trust in Christ, if you would be freed from a guilty conscience. To illustrate this confession of sin, you may have heard me tell before when I was a little boy, I was about seven or eight years old, and my dad was preaching a meeting in Rosman, North Carolina, and there at the Rosman Baptist Tabernacle, uh, it was the best church facilities of any of the churches that we were in fellowship there with, nice new facilities, highly respected and venerated church and pastor. And there as a little boy, I was running around chasing my friend B.J. Galloway around and he ran into the men's bathroom downstairs and not thinking, I took a broom handle and was just going to knock on the door and it rammed a hole right through the door. Well, I put the broom back and ran off and just hoped nobody would notice. And I'll never forget that evening 
sitting down in the passenger seat of that 1981 Subaru station wagon with my dad to go back home, and dad asked me that horrible question, do you know anything about that door being broken, somebody running a broom handle through the door in the church building? Oh, I didn't want him to ask that question. I was terrified. I had a guilty conscience. I knew I had done wrong, and I was trying to cover it up. My conscience tormented me. But you'll have no relief from it until there is confession. I confessed, and I said, yes, I did, and I told him it was by accident. So the next evening, he had me to go before Pastor Ray Aiken, that elderly pastor, one of the most respected preachers in Western North Carolina, And I was weeping and I was trembling and shaking with fear. And I confessed to him that I had broken that door. My dad made the arrangements with him to pay for it. It was 50 bucks. And dad spoke with me about what he was going to have me to do. But oh, what a relief it was to confess that and get it out in the open. And get get it behind us. That's the only way you're going to find relief from a guilty conscience. And that's exactly what 1 John 1.9 teaches us. That if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's what it teaches us in the 32nd Psalm, which we'll sing together later in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. He's been talking about, the psalmist has been talking about his bones drying up and he's withering away. The guilt is killing him. But then he says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And that psalm is singing about, oh, the blessedness of the man whose iniquities are covered. The only way you'll experience that blessedness is to come clean and confess your sin to God And I remind you, dear Christian, that if you have established a sinful pattern, a pattern of secret sin that you've been indulging in and it's become a pattern in your life, you fall to it over and over and over. You keep confessing it to God, you keep falling back into it. You confess it to God, you fall back into it. You're not really confessing it to God, you're just confessing it to yourself. And you need to confess it to a Christian brother or dear ladies, a Christian sister, either one of your elders or one of your trusted Christian friends that does not struggle with that same sin. And that's exactly what James tells us in James 5.16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess it. In this faith in Christ, you're not only confessing your sin, but you're trusting in Christ alone. This Levitical offering commands the, the offerer to bring a blood sacrifice with money payment plus 20% of whatever he had taken. So it's the sacrifice plus 20%. And this plus 20% reminds us of the value of Christ's death far beyond paying, just paying for our sins. He, as, as they stated it in the Synod of Dort, and we agree with, That the death of the Son of God is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sin and is of infinite worth and value. Christ doesn't just pay for your sins and put you back at zero. Oh no, when you trust in Him, the infinite, perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to your account. He more than pays 
for all your iniquities. And God accepts Christ and His payment as the payment for your sins when you trust in Christ. Isaiah 53 uses the very language as it is alluding to this trespass offering in 53.10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you made his soul an offering for sin. There at the cross, God counted Christ's righteousness, his death that we deserved. He counted it all as payment for your sins, dear believer. Payment and infinite credit to your account. We sang this morning, Jesus paid it all. And he did. And I remind you, 1 John 1.7, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. This is the trespass offering. You have to make restitution to God by faith in Christ. If you'd have a clear conscience, if you'd be freed from guilt. But the second way you must make restitution with God, it's not only by faith in Christ, but it is repentance in God, which is a gift of God that flows out of your new life of faith in Christ. So you must do this in repentance toward God. This is implied in the trespass offering. This offer is acknowledging to God, I have sinned. And I'm turning from this sin and I'm trusting in Christ as my sacrifice. I remind you that if you say that you've trusted in Christ, but you are not repenting, you are not turning from sin, then you have not trusted in Christ. Remember what we read about Zacchaeus earlier in Luke 19. How that Jesus said in Luke 19, 8 and 9, or, or the gospel tells us there, Matthew says, or rather Luke says, Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. If I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. What is Zacchaeus doing there? He, he lived as a tax collector who extorted and cheated and took money from people. What is he doing here saying, I'll give half my riches to the poor and then I'll restore four times over what I took from others? That is repentance. He is turning from his sinful lifestyle. That is the fruit that he has had true faith in Christ. And what's the context where Jesus makes this next statement? This is the context. He's repaying. He's making restitution with his neighbor. And it says, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus declares in the context of Zacchaeus' repentance that salvation has come to this house. If Zacchaeus had said, oh, I believe in Christ, and then went back living his same old cheating scheme in life, extorting others and living in a lifestyle of injustice toward others, there is no evidence that he had faith in Christ. But he does have true faith, and it bears the fruit of repentance. And this is true for every Christian. I want to just open up this thought for a moment, a few moments. And I want to warn you about what I would call in our modern reform circles today, there's a dangerous flavor of teaching. I would call it functional antinomianism. Antinomianism is anti-law. They uphold the law of God, but functionally and in the way they talk about the Christian life, really they're antinomian. No law for the Christian. 
And I remind you that in this, there are ditches on the left side and the right. We want to walk the middle of the road and not fall into either ditch. The ditch on the right extreme is things that you hear like final justification by works that somehow our works contribute to our justification. And I warn you that if you hear any teacher, he may call himself reformed, he may be well trusted in many other ways, but if you hear any man talk about a final justification by works, he's foolish at best and he's a false teacher at worst. Our works do not contribute one ounce to our justification. Scripture shouldn't, couldn't be clearer on this. That's the right ditch, but the left extreme, the left ditch is also dangerous and we must avoid it. And that is any teaching that says that you don't have to work in sanctification. They'll tell you things like, well, just, just rest in Christ, full stop, just, just rest. It's always just telling you, just rest. It's like you just lay back and just relax all the way to heaven. Any preaching that deletes the imperatives for the Christian. Indicative is what God has done for you in Christ. Imperative is what you are to do out of the overflow of the grace of God to you in Christ. But this kind of teaching deletes the imperative and it's just all about what God's done for you. There's nothing for you to do out of the overflow of it. And it's an error. And we as Protestants and Reformed Protestants rightly accuse Roman Catholicism of mixing justification and sanctification. They teach that our works contribute to our justification. We reject this. But we're prone to make the opposite error in acting as if there are no works necessary in our sanctification. The way we make this error is saying, well, justification is by faith alone and apart from works, our works are not involved at all in our justification. So therefore, there's no work involved in sanctification. But this is an error. And Scripture teaches us that in justification we contribute absolutely nothing. But in our sanctification, not only does God work, but we work. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. The fact that God is working in you by His grace does not negate that you also work. No, that's the reason you work. You work at your sanctification in faith by the grace and the power of the Spirit looking unto Jesus. You have to work at it. That's why Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 2, 12, and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and do for His good pleasure. Yes, God is working in you, and therefore you as a Christian work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So in sanctification, we do labor. You find this language all through the New Testament of laboring and striving. You find athletic language. You find warfare, soldier language. You find wrestling language, striving language. Paul saying, I, I buffet my body. Him telling us to strive and to work for God's glory. There that day at Rosman Baptist Tabernacle when I had knocked that hole in that door and done that damage. 
My dad paid for the door. He paid the 50 bucks. He handed $50 to Pastor Ray Aiken. He paid it all. We sang this morning, Jesus paid it all, and he did. But afterward, my dad told me, you're going to work with me this summer around the house. And you are going to work off that $50. And as a little boy, I still remember. I remember sweating out there in the heat. It it was just mundane, tedious work. I remember part of it was loading a bunch of rotten scrap boards, moldy rotten scrap boards up into a big dump truck till the dump truck was overloaded. I mean, we, we did work like that in the burning heat and the humidity. My dad had paid for the door. He had paid that all for me. But for my good, for my sanctification, if you will, for my learning, he had me to work and labor at remembering I should be more careful next time. And I guarantee you, I never ran a broom handle through another door again. Let me read you this quote from David Dixon that sums up what we're talking about. The Puritan David Dixon. He's speaking of where Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.19 of holding faith in a good conscience. He says this faith he describes from a threefold effect. So there's three effects of this faith and it relates to a good conscience. Number one, that true faith in the propitiatory blood of Christ renders the conscience good and peaceable and quiet. That's what we've just said. Only by the blood of Christ can you be purified from a guilty conscience. Second, he says that the conscience... Being now pacified, faith will not suffer that the heart be any longer delighted in evil, but rather endeavors after purity that it may be purged from all evil affections. That is repentance. And when your conscience has been cleansed by the blood of Christ, you desire to not sin. You desire to do righteousness for God's glory. Third, he reminds us that true faith is not idle in that which is good, but stirs up a man diligently to labor in the obedience of every precept by love to God and men. So if you would be absolved of a guilty conscience, requires faith in Christ and the repentance that flows out of that. And I warn you about this teaching going around today, this functional antinomianism. It claims to be reformed. It's the furthest thing from reformed. It's pseudo-reformed. Where they tell you to rest in Christ and that's all. There's no work for you to do in sanctification. And I heard a preacher recently, the whole sermon, he was trying to prove that there's no law for the Christians. So this was a doctrinal antinomian, but this shows the spirit of what I'm talking about. He quoted John 8 to prove, see, Jesus didn't give any law to the woman caught in adultery. He just told her, neither do I condemn you. But what did he leave out? Go and sin no more. Oh yes, we're free from condemnation. We're not justified by works, but once we're justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, God puts us to work by His grace. Go and sin no more. This is an example of what I'm talking about. There's a modern Reformed preacher that preached a sermon from Thessalonians where Paul says, pray without ceasing. 
And the whole sermon was rejoice. Christ is praying for you. No imperative. No exhorting God's people to pray like Paul is doing there. No, just, just rejoice. Christ is praying for you. That strips the word of God of its force and power and we must avoid it like the plague. Yes, we rejoice Christ is praying for us, but by God's grace, we pray. That's what the apostle is teaching there. To strip away the imperatives for the Christian is to give only half the truth and it is to distort the truth of God's word. I warn you, dear Christian, that any preaching or podcast or blog that makes you feel comfortable about your sin and feel comfortable in sin is false and ought to be rejected and it is dangerous. It brings a dangerous chill on our sanctification as if God is going to repent for you. Teaches you that there's no warfare, no work, no labor, no effort required in sanctification. But rather, Scripture teaches us, out of the overflow of our rest in Christ, we work, we strive, we fight. And as Paul said, we work out our own salvation as God works in us. And I labor because God is working in me. Scripture and the true Reformed faith teach that our good works do not contribute one ounce to our justification, but they do contribute to our sanctification. And without our sanctified, spirit-empowered, faith-filled work and effort, we will not grow in sanctification and we will not enjoy the benefits that Christ has purchased for us. Imagine there at Rosman Baptist Tabernacle, after I'd broken that door, my dad told me, you're going to work with me this summer. He was letting me feel the weight of the responsibility of that sin. And what if I would have said, oh, dad, I'm not going to work with you this summer. I'm already a son in your house. I already have the benefits of you being my father. I'm, I'm just going to enjoy living in your house and taking of the benefits. I'm not going to take the discipline. I'm not going to do that work. Yeah, right. If you knew my dad, you'd know that's absolutely not an option. You are going to work this summer. You are going to sweat and you are going to toil and you are going to feel the weight and the effects of the gravity of what you did in the moment of carelessness. And I know my dad was looking ahead. He wasn't doing it for his good. It didn't, it didn't give him anything. It didn't contribute anything to him. He didn't get richer by me working. We do not contribute at all our sanctification. Jesus paid it all. But the second part of that is, all to Him I owe. And part of what we owe Him is diligence and repentance and sanctification. And my dad was looking ahead and he knew it would benefit me. It's not benefiting him, but it would benefit me the rest of my life by working with him and feeling the weight of that sin he had freely forgiven me of and paid in my stead. This is how it is in justification Our works don't contribute anything but the training that God gives us in the work that we must do in sanctification is for our benefit and our good. Let me clarify this as well about repentance. Repentance is not saying, yeah, I keep keep doing this sin, but I, I feel bad about it and I'm working on it. 
I'm wallowing in this sin. I go on living in this sin. It's the whole pattern of my life. But I, I feel bad about it sometimes, and I'm, I'm working on it. One, one day, you know, one day, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do better. No, that's not repentance. Repentance is a turning from sin, a hatred for sin. Thomas Watson called it the vomit of the soul, whereby you're sickened by that sin. You vomit it out like a poison. It's what Jesus said to the woman taken in adultery, as we saw earlier. Go and sin no more. You think that woman went and left and went back home and got back in the bed with that man? She got caught in an hour earlier when they brought her before Jesus caught in the very act? No way. No, she didn't go back to that sinful lifestyle because she had true faith evidenced and manifest in true repentance. This is the true repentance you must have, not sinless perfection, but a true turning from sin and hating sin if you would be cleared from a guilty conscience. And I remind you that this repentance and faith contains the whole gospel. Paul told the Ephesians in Acts 20, 21, when he sums up all the counsel of God that he had preached to them, and when he tells them there at Ephesus for three years, how that you know, I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks. Okay, what did he teach them? Why is it he says he's free from the blood of all men? This is what it was. He says, repentance toward God and faith. Toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a shorthand summary of the whole gospel. And it is by the gift of faith. Whereby you trust in Christ. And you're justified. By the gift of faith God frees you from the penalty of sin. You're declared righteous in God's court. You're credited with the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's by the gift of faith. But by the gift of repentance... God frees you from the power of sin. Salvation is not just God declaring you righteous and pardoning you from the penalty of sin, but it's God delivering you more and more throughout this life, dear Christian, from the power of sin. This true repentance is a breaking off of sin. If there at Roslyn Baptist Tabernacle, after I had that talk with my dad, he paid for the door. Imagine if I'm still running around ramming broom handles through doors. Have I repented? No. This is a breaking away, a breaking off, a turning from sin. And it's for two different distinct things in this passage in ways we've sinned against God. The first is for misuse of God's sacred things. This is one of the way they could, ways they could commit this unintentional sin. It tells us about it in Leviticus 22.2. He says, speak to Aaron's sons that they separate themselves from the holy things of the children of Israel and that they do not profane my holy name by what they dedicated to me. I am the Lord. There are two ways at least that you could misuse God's sacred things. One is by misuse of the vessels of the tabernacle service. You know, they had those, those bowls and cups and dis- different instruments that they used. And we know that under the new covenant, it is our body itself 
that is referred to as a vessel. Some believe this passage, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24, is speaking about one's spouse. But others believe it's talking about our own body. But either way, it is signifying our body. He says there, Paul tells us, now may the... May the God of peace, or rather in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 5, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. As Christians, Our body is like one of the holy vessels of the tabernacle. It is dedicated to God. It's not to be used for any other purpose but for unto the glory of God. And when we sin, we use our body to sin. We're desecrating the holy vessel of God. And we need forgiveness for it by the blood of Christ. Another way that they could do this to misuse God's sacred things is to misuse the instruments that were associated with the tabernacle service, instruments and tools. And Paul tells us in Romans 6, 12 to 14, likening our body, the faculties of our body and soul as instruments in the hands of God. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Paul likens the faculties of your body and soul as instruments that are set aside wholly to God for his service and not to be used for sin. And because we have sinned in body and soul, We need this forgiveness and we need to repent. And as a Christian, I remind you, as we'll hear in the Lord's Supper in a little while, as Christ said, take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Christ never sinned in his body. He used his body and soul only ever for the glory of God and this righteousness is credited to you. I remind you, dear believers, Paul exhorts us to abstain from fornication and to use our body and our soul as instruments of righteousness unto God. Give yourself over to God in this way. Turn from all impurity. And I remind you, as Paul reminded the Thessalonians, that one day you will be fully sanctified. God will keep sanctifying you until the return of Christ, and then you'll be fully sanctified when you're glorified. As Paul said, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who called you is faithful, who also will do it. God will fully sanctify you. He will keep sanctifying you through this life and he'll fully finish it at the return of Christ. Be freed from all guilt. Be freed, we've seen firstly, by making restitution with God, by faith in Christ and in repentance toward God. It's not just in the misuse of the things of God's tabernacle, but also concerning the self-centered use of God's sacred goods. 
We read in Deuteronomy 12, 17 to 18, when, when the Jewish people have set aside something for God's use, they're not to consume it themselves. This could include tithes and offerings. It can include sacrificial animals, first fruits, etc. And you could imagine a scenario where the family has set aside the first fruits. They're going to take it and offer it to God. And one of the kids comes through and grabs that food off the table and eats it. He has just sinned by taking the holy things of God for self-centered use. And we need Christ's forgiveness and atonement for this. Christ who never did anything out of self-centered motivation. But as Paul tells us, who gave himself for us. We can think about this specifically in relation to the Sabbath. When, when you come to realize that you have taken and used God's holy time for self-centered purposes. Oh, may we repent. May we take hope in the day when we'll only fully live in giving ourselves to God and others in glory with no selfishness. The second thing that you must do if you'd be freed from all guilt is not only make restitution with God, but make restitution with your neighbor. Be freed from all guilt, secondly, by making restitution with your neighbor. Chapter 6 deals with this in the first seven verses. And specifically, you must make restitution as far as is possible. Sometimes it's not possible. Maybe the person's deceased. Maybe it's a scenario where it's impossible. But as far as is possible, you must make restitution with your neighbor in all ways that you've cheated your neighbor. In all ways that you've committed injustice against them. Specifically here in this context, we read of lying and gaining, gaining money and different things by lying. And if we think this is just old covenant and this doesn't apply to new covenant believers, remember how that Paul tells us in Ephesians four twenty-two to 25 that in Christ he says that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying... Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. There are five different ways here that you could cheat your neighbor that we must repent of if we would have a clear conscience before God. The first is misappropriation of funds. In 6.2, it speaks of safekeeping Somebody gives you the money to go get the groceries, or if you're roommates and they give you the rent money and you spend some of it on something else, misappropriation of funds, this is a form of theft. The second way is failure to fulfill financial commitments. He talks about pledge money in verse 2. This could be wages as a boss that you owe to your employees, withholding wages, or not paying your bills, payment owed, any kind of payment owed. And I know a scenario of professing Christians that what they would do is they would rent an apartment and they knew the legal loophole of how many days it takes to be evicted, maybe 30 days or whatever the amount was, and they would stop paying their rent and they would use that loophole to stay in that apartment until they get evicted to go to another one and they would get free rent that way. That is wicked and ungodly and it's theft and it must be repented of and that money must be restored to that landlord. Landlord. 
The third way you could cheat your neighbor is through simple theft. It mentions in verse 2, robbery. It doesn't matter if it's a dime or if it's a million dollars, it's theft. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, alongside homosexuals and sodomites, he says, thieves shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And some of those Corinthians, he says, such were some of you, but now you're washed, sanctified, and justified. Praise God. But if you live that lifestyle and you don't repent of stealing, you will not enter glory, Paul teaches. The fourth way that they could cheat a neighbor, we could cheat a neighbor is by extortion. He mentions this in verse 2, 6 2. Extortion is manipulation to gain goods or money by unjust means. Manipulation, coercion, bullying, intimidation. And Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 6 9 and 10, alongside. Drunkards, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves. He says extortioners shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a serious sin that must be repented of, whether it's high level or low level extortion. The fifth way that we could cheat a neighbor is by passive theft. He mentions in verse 6 something that's lost and found. You find an item that somebody lost and you... You grab it up and you keep it for yourself. You don't put forth any effort to go find out whose it is. You just keep it. You find a wallet or you find a $100 bill laying there. You don't make any effort to restore it to its rightful owner. You just automatically keep it for yourself. This is a form of passive theft that must be repented of. And I remind you, dear Christian, in all these ways of cheating neighbor, Christ never cheated his neighbor As Paul said of the Son of God, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. Christ never took and cheated you or anyone. He always gave. And His perfect righteousness is credited to you. And now God calls you to live in that example and to repent of all injustices toward neighbor Make it right with your neighbor, dear Christian, whether it's a large or a small matter. And I remind you that in glory, if you have been wronged and they don't repay you, they don't make it right with you, all rights will be made, all wrongs will be made right in glory. You can look forward to that. It is going to happen, even if not in this life. So secondly, be freed from all guilt by making restitution with your neighbor third and finally be freed from all guilt without delay do it without delay in Leviticus 517 we read where it implies that as soon as the man realizes he is guilty that he is to bring this trespass restitution offering as soon as you realize you're guilty that's when you need to pursue restitution 
Isn't that what our Lord Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 23 to 24? Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. A rough equivalent under the new covenant and our new covenant worship, we're not bringing an offering to a literal altar like they did in the tabernacle and temple. But imagine if you arrived at prayer meeting this morning and you realize you've wronged your brother. Literally, you're to get up and go deal with it now or else it's implied God's not going to hear your prayer as long as you are willfully harboring sin. Is that not what we heard last week from the Psalms? If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Deal with it now and don't fall into the trap of thinking you can put it off till later. I want to give you three motivations to be freed from guilt without delay. The first is this that's taught in our text here that sin against your neighbor is sin against God Himself. We read that in Leviticus 6 2. If a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord, By lying to his neighbor. You sin against your fellow man, your spouse, your child, your parent, your family member, your co-worker, any fellow human. You sin against them. You have automatically sinned against God in whose image they're made. This is a motivation to repent. Second motivation is you're always better off to confess than to get caught. In the book of Exodus, we read here that if this man comes and confesses his sin of theft, he he pays 20% on top of the price. So if you you stole $100 from your neighbor, you pay him back $100 plus $20, 20%. But Exodus tells us if a thief is caught, he'll pay double. You stole $100 from your neighbor, you pay back $200. You're always better off. To confess than to get caught. And one benefit of this is it gives opportunity for restored trust when you confess it instead of somebody catching you in this sin. The third motivation is this. That it is for the good of your own soul. Living with a pure conscience and doing what you can to have restoration and reconciliation between you and your neighbor, laboring to have a pure conscience before God, it's good for your own soul. Proverbs 17.22 tells us, A merry heart does good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. You live with a guilty conscience. And it will sap you from the inside out. It will weigh you down. It will sap your joy. It will literally affect your health. As the psalmist says in Psalm 32, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me and my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. You harbor that sin. You don't repent of it. This is the result. But oh, it's good for your own soul to be freed from that guilty conscience. The joy of your salvation will be restored as the psalmist says in Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. You'll have a clear conscience. 
Now, I want to ask you now, every one of you, every one of you, are you living under the burden of unresolved guilt? Is there the guilt of any sin weighing on your conscience, that smoke alarm going off, annoying you, telling you something's not right, telling you've committed an injustice? That guilty heart pounding and pounding and you think everybody else knows because you're hearing your own heart pounding. You think it's somebody else's. Are you experiencing that? You suffer from guilt for past misuse of your body and sin or misuse of goods that belong to God? Do you suffer from guilt for cheating your neighbor, doing wrong towards another? Do you know what it is to have guilt on your trail like those bear dogs hounding that bear and nipping at its heels and chasing it and chasing it and they wouldn't let up? But I declare to you today on the authority of Jesus Christ and his word, you don't have to live that way. Christ can free you from a guilty conscience because he is the trespass or restitution offering. And that's why Paul tells us in Hebrews 9, 14, how much more shall we, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's what Christ came to do. That's why he says in Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You could experience that this very day. If you come clean with God and with your neighbor. When I saw and heard those bear dogs those hound dogs trailing and dogging that black bear in eastern North Carolina. They're running and running and the, the whole band of hunters were closing in there with their rifles ready to make the shot. And Remember they went over this, this embankment like a dike, like, kind of like a dam. And I ran up onto that embankment to try to get a view of that bear. And there were those dogs. They had jumped into the water of that swamp. And they were going back and forth and back and forth everywhere trying to smell the trail of that bear. But what had happened is that bear ran into that swamp. And beyond it was a wildlife refuge. And when he hit that swamp water, the dogs lost his trail. And they ran back and forth and back and forth. And they never found his trail again. He was gone and he was safe. And the thought occurred to me that day that though you're dogged by the hellhounds of a guilty conscience and the guilt of past sin, you run into Christ by faith like that bear ran into that swamp water. Satan cannot hold that guilt over you anymore. You'll be cleansed from a guilty conscience. You will find refuge in Christ and no guilt and no accuser can follow you there and make any of his charges to stick. And you'll be safe in Christ and live in the freedom of that as his people. Oh, live in this freedom, dear Christian. Trusting in Christ and turning from sin. Oh, dear sinner, now, oh, this very moment, run into Christ and find refuge and be freed from a guilty conscience. Let's pray together.
Our Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for the forgiveness and the cleansing that we have in Christ, and I confess my absolute inadequacy to be able to convey the richness and the hope of it, but we pray that by the work and grace of your Spirit, you would bring these truths home to our hearts and transform us by the power of the gospel, we pray. And I pray that not one of us as a Christian would live with any guilty conscience, that we would trust in Christ and turn from sin. And we pray this for dear ones who are yet without Christ this day. In Jesus' name, amen.